Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to you, dear listeners. Welcome to Floaters. Let me bring you up to speed. My name is Sofia. My parents are Spanish, German, a bit English. I grew up in a few different countries. Had a boarding school stint in the UK during my pubescent years, teenage years, if you will, and now found myself living with my parents full time again for the first time since I was eleven. Let's get stuck in. Today I am recording. A couple of weeks after the second lockdown in the UK was lifted, I'm back working in a shop, and as you can imagine, being the time of year it is, a、uh, hello Christmas, it's very, very busy. Yesterday was National Christmas Jumper Day. Is the UK the only country that do this? Because don't get me wrong, I love a bit of good old Christmas cheer, but compulsory Christmas cheer. Compulsory fun, you say? I find nothing more hideous in the entire world, and that's really saying something. Now, let's quit that jibber jabber and on to today's guest for episode ten. Today, I am talking to Iranian Chicagoan advocate for education equity, fellow Harry Potter nerd Nahal. Now, Nahal is. A true gem of a person, and I know you're going to come away from this podcast thinking exactly that. And we talked about、um, all sorts of things, including our relationship with the religions we were brought up in,、uh, what our names have in common, and I truly am so grateful to her for being so open about sharing her experiences、uh, living in America and also as the daughter of immigrants, which she shared with all the peaks and valleys that come with it. And I'm very excited for you to listen to this one. And、uh, oh, as a fun exercise—sorry, it was probably a bit loud in your ears. Apologies, dear listener.、Um, let's play a little game of、uh, bingo. First person to identify which Peter Pan characters come up in the podcast wins a shout out from me. <laughs> Are you ready? You ready? Okay. In true floaters form. We start the episode with where Nahal grew up. It's nothing that's interesting at all whatsoever. But I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, the northwest suburbs to be exact. So it's about an hour or so away,、um, in a very, very, very white little suburb、um, called Algonquin.、Um, it was connected to a bunch of little towns,、um, but we were one of. Two Iranian families that lived in the entire neighborhood, and so I didn't know much else growing up other than being surrounded by all these other people that looked the same, and I suddenly looked a little different. But nobody could quite understand what that meant.、Um, and my parents had actually both immigrated from Iran two years before I was born、um, to our little suburb, and so my mom still wore hijab when I was growing up, and it was very visible that we were a Muslim family.、Um, And so I always knew that we were a little different, but I guess I never understood until I got a little bit older,、um, and differences were pointed out to me what that meant.、Mm. Yeah, that's always helpful, isn't it? The the input from other people,、right. isn't it? Yes, definitely. So so important, so necessary. Yeah, <laughs> and you're still based in Chicago. I am. So about five years ago now, yeah, going on, I moved、um, to Chicago for school for college、um, for my undergraduate degree, and then ended up staying here for my graduate degree,、um, which I'll be wrapping up in about six months. Oh, that's. A, what are you studying again? I'm studying public policy. So essentially, I explain it to most people as like 
if I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, which I did, but then decided that instead of going into the niche of the law, it would be more so the benefit of the public. So lobbying, advocating for positive change. Um, my specific niche is education equity, um, because as we all know, higher education in the United States is not equitable. Um, so I'm working towards trying to fix that. <laughs> Well, I, I can imagine you totally like being in a position where you're like, okay, this needs fixing. This needs fixing. Let's get it done. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and um, with your parents moving over from Iran, was that for, um, was that, what, what motivated that decision for you yeah. or for your parents? <laughs> well, from what my mom told me, it was, they grew up in a very, obviously, tumultuous time period. My dad was about 19 years old when the Iranian Revolution broke out. So he was serving his two-year mandatory military sentence. Um, and within all of that and all that hullabaloo, as my parents grew up, they just realized that they wanted me to have a lot of the opportunities that they had heard so much about from, you know, everybody being like, America is the land of the great. It is the best place that you can take your child. Um, Obviously, I still think that to an extent, but I don't idolize any one country or nation specifically. I think that that's, I think that that's a worldview that just obviously needs a little bit more fine-tuning to it. Um, but my parents ultimately decided that they wanted me to grow up somewhere where I had a little bit more availability and freedom in order to choose what I wanted to study, um, to not be mandated to wear a hijab if I didn't choose to. Um, I didn't end up choosing to, which is fine, but had I ended up choosing being, you know, that being my decision, they would have also been comfortable with that. So ultimately it was because of education and career opportunities, but I think that they also just wanted to start a different life and almost start over. Mm -hmm. And, and for your parents, I think to sort of in, embrace the culture that they brought you to and especially with, uh, yeah, like not, you know, you choosing not to wear the hijab and things. Mm -hmm. I think that's a real testament to your parents uh, of just like their, their faith in you and also the country that they, they chose for you. Yeah. And I think it's also crazy to think about, like my mother was, she was 22 when she immigrated here and no, I'm sorry. She was 21 when she immigrated here and 23 when she had me. And now being 23 and thinking about moving to another country with a man who I just recently married and having a child with one suitcase in tow, I could never, I, I could not even fathom what my mom was thinking when she decided to. And I couldn't be more grateful. Like she didn't speak English when she moved here. She spoke Farsi and Arabic um, and moved here. My father didn't speak English when he immigrated here. Um, and he's 12 years older than my mother. So it took him a bit longer to adapt to the language. But now they're both fluent in multiple languages, have worked multiple jobs, um, and they're both working blue-collar jobs. Neither of them actually went to college. Um, my mother started a bit of it when she was in Iran, but then ended up um, leaving to take care of her family and whatnot in Iran. So it's been a wild ride as I get older, listening to their stories and imagining like me being put in that position now. I looked at her the other day and I was like, Mom, what if I just decided to call you out of the blue and say like, hey... I'm going to move to Paris with a man that I just married like two months ago. He's great. You'll meet him. Like she'd kill me. <laughs> it's funny how things change, isn't it? It's like, oh, yeah. I mean, I was thinking about my mum. Like she met my dad when she was uh -huh. 24. I'm 26. Uh -huh. yeah. My older sister is 29. 
Uh-huh. And like, we, we, we have these conversations frequently of like, oh yeah. my God, like, cause my mum was, uh, is German and my dad's half Spanish, half English and how uh-huh. they met, they just happened to meet and then they, right. they go off and have this extraordinary life. And it's like, yeah. how do you know? And also right. like, I was not responsible enough at 24. Like I know I'm only two years on, but I was definitely not responsible enough. Absolutely not. I'm a walking mess. <laughs> It's just, oh, it's crazy, isn't it, to think about it? But um, I wonder, what's your relationship like with languages then? Do you have a grip of, like, Farsi as well? Yeah, so it's actually really funny. My friends still make fun of me to this day. Um, Growing up, my parents would not answer me if I walked into the house and spoke in English to them. They would only respond if I spoke in Farsi which was so frustrating to like a 13 year old Nahal who all I wanted to do was come home and be like, mom, I had the worst day ever. Like blah, 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 blah. And she would just keep cooking or keep cleaning or keep doing whatever she was doing and completely ignore me. And then I'd be like, you understand what I'm saying? Like you've lived here for 15 years now. Like, you know what I'm saying? She just would pretend not to understand. So in retrospect, it's really helped because now I'm fluent in Farsi. Um, they made me go to Persian school every Saturday growing up until I was about 15. And so I would learn how to read, write, um, grammar. I would take religion classes. And then right around when I was 15 or so, I stopped going because I had enrolled in swimming and that took up my weekends. And so we compromised on that. Um, but I don't practice my Farsi as much anymore just because I don't have a real need to unless I'm, you know, talking on the phone with them. So I'm going to get back into it and watch some TV and just refresh it. But yeah, it's, I'm fluent in Farsi. I did not learn Arabic, unfortunately. My mother kept that one from me. I don't know why. I think it's just to yell at me in a foreign language that I don't understand sometimes because <laughs> <laughs> she still does that. Um, my dad lived in Germany for a few years before... Um, he had met my mother. And so he knows a bit of German and I took German in high school. So I speak German. I wouldn't say fluently, but at an apprenticeship level, I could get by. Um, But I can read in Arabic as well. So I don't call myself a polyglot, but I could get by here and there. Oh yeah, I'm sure you could. I mean, have you been, um, do you go to Iran? Like, I mean, have you been to Iran often enough to like practice it there as well? I've been three times in my life. And unfortunately, the last one was almost 10 years ago. Um, I was 14. And then in between that time and now, you know, going to college and then just living away from my parents and finances. And then with the presidencies switching, I was actually supposed to go, funny enough, um, when I met you, I was supposed to go to Iran. Um, I don't remember if I told you that, but I was planning on spending essentially one week in London, one week in Iran, and then one week in Paris to fly back and meet a class that I was going on a trip with. Um, And it was right around the Iranian New Year, March or so, I remember. And my mom had called me when I had landed in London. She's like, it's not going to work out. Your dad can't get time off work. And it had just become a too stressful situation. So I was like, okay, I'll just stay here for a bit longer and veg it out. Um, So I'm hoping to go this summer if all works out and if COVID starts relaxing a little bit and vaccines get spread out. I'm hoping to go this summer and see my family. Yeah, I I really hope so too. Um, I mean, I remember when we met and for the context of people who who might be listening, we met because um, uh, Nahal was actually on a tour that I was conducting. I was doing... um, (laughs) 
<laughs> it feels like a lifetime ago for me. It does. I, <laughs> I used to do Harry Potter walking tours around London. <laughs> and Nahal, honestly, like when you turned up, I was like, oh, she's very confident, very nice. And because you were traveling on your own, weren't you? And we yes, were friends were. with someone else who was traveling on their own as well. Yes. And then um, very nicely, you invited me out for a drink. And I thought, am I allowed to do this? Like, as. <laughs> As like, you know, someone who's kind of working for you now, like I'm, you know, conducting the service. But then I thought, you know what? Why not? Let's go. Um, but um, it, we had a really nice time. And I remember you talking about like, especially, you know, um, the travel ban that was, mm-hmm. that had just sort of, it was coming to, it had come to an end by the time we were speaking. Yes. But um, how it had affected you and your family as well. Yes. Yeah. Oh gosh. It's so wild to think about that. It's almost been, what? Yeah. Like two years almost nearly since we met. Um, that's so crazy. And for everybody that's listening, I'm a diehard Harry Potter fan and clearly so is Sophia. So if you want to unpack that as well, we absolutely can. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I was trying to explain to my roommate, like the podcast and talking about it. And she's like, he goes, Hey, no, Sophia. And I explained the whole story and he's like, you're such a nerd. I'm like, thank you. I know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Wear that with a badge of honor. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I actually have a um, Harry Potter bear that I was gifted as an early Christmas present for my best friend, and he's in Gryffindor robes. I'll show you at the very end. Um, And we can put a picture up if anybody for the podcast would like to see it later on. (laughs) Oh my God, totally. I need to see this. Um, But yeah, in terms of the Muslim ban, it would... I was originally supposed to go on a official London study abroad trip. Um, I could never actually afford the term long of study abroad trip. So this was only about a week long and it was supposed to be, I believe it was spring of 2017 that I was supposed to go for about a week and a half. And the Muslim ban had been announced. And I remember that Iran showed up on that list and I had no idea what that meant. You know, like I was reading through it. I was trying to understand, you know, any language that had been put out about it. And all that I was reading were these horror stories of people that either were on student visas, just trying to come back from holiday, or they were trying to just visit family, or somebody was trying to come in and get medical attention. And regardless of whether or not they were a citizen or were on a visa or were anything, were being kept and detained in the airports um, because they looked suspicious or because their name was suspicious. And I can only tell you how many horror stories I have of the Transportation Security Administration, um, or TSA in the States, looking at my driver's license and seeing that my name was foreign or weird spelling or didn't look like the name Amy or Andrew or something along those lines and would just always tend to ask me either extra questions or I've been asked to step aside and get strip searched in a separate room before. And I, I don't think that I look scary by any means. Maybe I look scary to a specific type of person, but... They just, they, and especially in the summer when I'm, when my skin tone's a little bit tanner, it's an immediate like, oh, that's, that's a red flag. Um, and so I had heard a story of an Iranian American doctor. Um, and I remember that they had mentioned that he was born here. His parents, just like mine, were immigrants, but they were citizens as well. And he was a doctor just coming back from a trip, wanting to go and see his patients and do his thing. And they kept him for, I believe, 48 hours or so. Um, And I saw that and I reached out to my university immediately and I was like, I know that legally I should be fine going and coming back and it shouldn't be a problem. Um, But shouldn't doesn't necessarily translate to will or will not actually happen. 
Um, and so at that point I had reached out university and I said, you know what, I don't feel comfortable going on this trip anymore just because I, I don't know if I'm going to be detained. And that's a risk that I am not comfortable taking right now. Um, and they're like, no problems, no worries. And then when the next year rolled around, um, things had started to settle down a little bit more. Lawsuits had been filed and figured out. And at that point I was like, okay, then I'm going to go try and see my family. And unfortunately that didn't work out, but I did get to meet you. So you know what? It all worked out in the end. <laughs> that's very kind of you to say. I mean, I'm, I, there's a part of me that like, obviously I've, I've read about such sort of, um, situations, um, from this side of the pond and, um, it's really, you know, it's awful that it's happened to you. I mean, uh, with the strip searches and stuff, is that more than once that's happened to you or has it like been a couple, like just that one off? Um, Sorry sorry if I'm crying too much, by the way, just tell me like if it's too much. No, not at all. I don't really think too deeply about it until I say the stories and then I'm kind of like, oh, that's messed up, isn't it? Like, that's really problematic. Um, but it, I've only been fully strip searched one time and I was about 16. Um, 16? I was petrified. I was absolutely petrified. Um, I mean, I part of my language, but what the yeah. fuck? Oh, absolutely. It's a big old what the fuck situation. I, yeah, I was 16. I was coming back from a trip somewhere in the summer. I think it was just like a weekend something that I went. Um, oh, you know what? Yes, I was with my father. I remember this now. Um, and I was coming back from, I think we were in Florida, maybe Miami, somewhere where I was really tan um, coming back and, or going to, because I had been in the summer and I was a lifeguard and all this sort of stuff. And they had asked me to step aside. My father works at the airport. And so he had gone ahead and I was just meeting him there and sort of walking through the security by myself. And they asked me to step aside in a room. And, you know, when you're 16 and a position of authority, somebody comes forward and asks you to do something. I had, I was like, okay, I don't see an issue. Sure. Why not? They asked me if I'd rather have a male or a female attendant. I just, you know, said female. And I remember that she was, she was actually a fairly nice officer. She explained things to me as it was going through. And then I remember it being done, going to my gate and telling my father when I met him what had happened. And he was so in shock for a split moment that he was like, they asked you to do what? Like, why? Like, and I'm like, I don't know. I didn't have anything in my bag or any problems or anything like that. And then he sat down and he thought about it. And he was like, sometimes you're treated differently sometimes I'm treated differently. And the only reason why a lot of people are nice to me, he said, um, is because I've worked at this airport for almost 20 years and I've built relationships. But the first time um, that he remembered being treated differently was when 9-11 happened and he was working at the airport. And as soon as that happened, all the friendships that he had built and all the relationships that he had built, people started to question him and look at him differently. And he'd made fun of his accent. Um, and I remember when he told me that people made fun of his accent, I became enraged, like absolutely enraged. Like the man can speak multiple languages. You can speak one and you're making fun of his accent. Who's the one that should be thinking introspectively right now? You know, um, I don't even know where I was going with that, but yeah, it it was wild. No, that's the, yeah, totally wild. I can't believe, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, I mean, uh, this has come up a lot on this podcast, but it seems mm-hmm. to be that 
a lot of the case that people, um, when they're not sure of where you're from or who a certain person is, they want to put you in a box, but when they can't put you in a box or when they assume bo- uh, like a box for you, that's when, you know, issues arise, like whether it's for yeah. you personally or whether it's like there's a, there's a sort of greater outcome or like, um, external outcome. But, um, I, I just want to say, I'm so sorry. Like, that that's happened to you it's just, just so shocking and of course I realize that it's not exclusive like it it, it must happen quite a lot um to a lot yeah. of men women and children like throughout yeah well and I guess the other thing that I would say is I know that I have been blessed because at certain times of year I can come off as white passing and that is a privilege that I know that I hold in some cases and in some cases you look at me and you can absolutely tell that I am a person of color in other aspects but even the concept that I can be looked at in times and some people will assume that I'm white is something that a lot of people don't have the privilege of being able to say Um, and they're treated differently constantly like I'm lucky that most of the experiences that I have had um, whether or not they have been appropriate is another question, but they have not been the majority of my life. They have been portions of my life that I can distinctly remember. You know, anytime I go to the airport, I generally leave like two and a half hours early just in case something happens. And that's not a fear that most people have, but that's something that I always will hold on to me. Combined with the fact that I wear a necklace that says my name in it in Farsi letters all the time, like somebody will look at it and know, you know, um, But also being put into a box, I feel like, is something that, unfortunately, a lot of Middle Eastern people in specifics have been meant to make feel smaller. Um, On most government official applications here in the States, it says, you know, pick whatever your race is, and under white, they have parentheses that say this includes Middle Eastern people. Um, And I don't know a specific time where I can point out that Middle Eastern people are considered white when you look at them. Um, I wrote a few research papers on this in my last year in undergrad about the rise in Middle Eastern sentiment and anti-Islamophobia, um, or I'm sorry, Islamophobia and anti-racist sentiment um, that happened after 9-11 in the United States. Like the amount of hate crimes rose up nearly 70% to anybody that was clearly either ethnically ambiguous or looked Hispanic because they looked Arab and that is how they justified it. And it was justified. And then, you know, things happened in the States and the United States government, like the Patriot Act and the infiltration of multiple different countries by means of justifying the loss of life, which obviously is something that we never want to happen. Like 9-11 was horrible. It was absolutely disgusting, but so was the United States' response to it. And I feel like that is something that is very often overlooked and then made to make other people feel smaller or feel like they should be looked at as smaller because they're not, you know, your stereotypical blonde haired, blue eyed person. They're always treated as different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, I wonder, I mean, what's your relationship with Islam now as well? Um, growing up, um, in the States. Yeah. Um, I think the majority of my life when I lived with my parents, I identified very strongly as Muslim and I still do, but I don't practice Islam in the way that I wish that I could still have a relationship with it. And I think that that's also fine because whatever relationship that I decide to have with Allah is mine. Um, and I still pray to him in my own way. I choose not to wear hijab because I don't feel like I do a good job 
of embracing religion as my entire self. And there are certain people that can and want to and will. And I think that's beautiful. Um, But I think that, and that also goes with any religion specifically. I think that, you know, like you could be a Catholic who doesn't go to church every single Sunday, but still say that you're Catholic. And I think, yeah. Right. And I think that there's totally different relationships that you can hold with religion. Like I love Ramadan. I try and fast as much as I can. Um, during that month, I will say I'm not the greatest Muslim to ever walk the planet by any means whatsoever. Um, I try and practice what I preach, but there's also a lot of times where I just wish that I could sit down and be better about religion. But I think the main thing that I take away from Islam is, you know, we have five pillars and the biggest ones are charity and fasting in order to feel how other people feel and build your relationship with God. Um, but the biggest part that Allah has ever preached is being a kind person, right? And I think that you can totally see that in anything that you want to do in just truly being able to be like, how do I want to spend my time? Like I want to spend my time doing research and studying on education inequities within the United States and making sure that every student has the ability to gain an education if they choose to, you know, and not be in crippling student debt afterward and be able to just sit down and have the ability to go and do something and study something without having to financially burden themselves for the rest of their lives. And I think that in me wanting to study and work in order to try and correct some of society's wrongs is the best way that I can personally build on my relationship with God and being a Muslim, even if it's maybe not like your stereotypical me wearing a hijab and praying five times a day. Um, But there's also a running joke within, you know, most Muslims that I know is that like the one thing that we will absolutely not do, eat pork, can't do it, will not do it. I mean, that's impressive in itself. I mean, with me and Catholicism, like everything has pretty much gone out the window. Um, But, you know, I suppose I do think of spirituality in my own certain way. So I have my own sort of relationship with with God in some kind of way. Um, But I I think it's um, it's a very personal thing, though, religion or like just how you practice whatever spirituality that you decide to. Um, So it's... um, it's still so bizarre that even like thousands and thousands of years, people are being judged upon their their religions and their fates. And you would think by now everything would have been grown out of like all that sort of, um, that sort of attitude. But, um, I mean, I think it's interesting as well that your parents, like when they moved here, um, Mm -hmm. because a lot of people who, I'm sorry, that's a horrible generalization. No, Um, no, no. Some people who, move countries and perhaps mm-hmm. have slightly different sounding names to the country they're moving to, yeah. they, they would choose to change them. So, uh, you know, it, they might change it to, for example, like in the UK, they might change it to like John or Wendy yeah. or something, or, yeah. um, in, instead of like a native mm-hmm. name, uh, sorry, does that make sense? <laughs> that makes yes, sense? No, I totally understand. Totally <laughs> felt like I went on a little tangent, but, um, I think it's really interesting and actually really lovely that your parents decided you know, to keep with the culture, despite, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, living in a, living in the States. I think that's, that's brilliant. I mean, does your name mean yeah. anything at all? It, it does. I, my mother decided that instead of giving me like a stereotypical like name in Iran for a, a girl, it, there's a lot of like Sara, Sarah, like Ava, Ava. Um, I don't want to say like generic, but like 
you know what the average Americanized name might be, say, you know, like Alex or whatever else it might be. She wanted one that was more old timey. Um, and so Nahal, while it is still like obviously a very Persian, not American name, it is like an old school Persian name. Like there's not a ton of Nahals rolling around. There's a handful, but not a ton. And then with the accent, what it's actually supposed to be pronounced as in Farsi, it's Nahal. Um, and it means small tree of wisdom. I don't really know why, but that's what she chose. <laughs> and then my middle sister, Summer, um, means fruit of life. And Nassim is my youngest. And that means w- wind, joy of wind or windful joy or something like that. And all of our names are a little unique <laughs> in terms of our relationship um, with being Iranian, um, but they're definitely still names that like, if another Persian person saw my name, they'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, she's for sure Persian instead of like questioning it. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you know, that's actually yours and my name. That's something we have in common because mm-hmm. yours is tree of wisdom and mm-hmm. Sophia in Greek apparently means the wise one. So I oh, mean, look at us. I know, I know. I mean, my parents got it wrong for sure, but <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, at least it's there. It's there in print. We've got it. Right. You're like, it's, it's there, so I must have some sort of connection. <laughs> Hopefully some of it will seep in at some point. Just waiting. Oh, still waiting. Still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you, um, do you have uh, two passports then? Do you have dual nationality? I do. Yes. I'm a dual citizen um, because both my parents are from Iran. So I'm thankful enough that I have dual citizenship at the moment. And depending on who I marry, um, I guess that my children might be able to get um, dual citizenship as well. Oh my God. Definitely do it. Definitely. Definitely. I got to find a Persian guy, which none of them are around apparently. Oh my God. Well, when, once you find someone, you've, you've got to do it, honestly, because that's one of the biggest regrets that, well, it, it, a regret that I have that my for my parents is that like yeah. my my mum renounced her sort of German c- citizenship to be British oh, okay. with my dad, and now okay. that like Brexit's happened and all that sort of stuff, right. we're all sort of going, oh shit, right. <laughs> we need to be oh. able to go to Europe. And um, what's funny is she was still a German citizen when she had my older sister, so I'm in the middle, uh-huh. and. Um, so my older sister has like little to no problems in terms of applying for German citizenship. Whereas she's right. British with myself and my younger sister. So like, we're going to have problems <laughs> in oh, terms no. of trying to get the paperwork done and it's going to be a lot more expensive. So when you do <sighs> find that guy, like no matter what, you're like, listen, <laughs> yeah, we need to get this done. <laughs> right. Right. Oh gosh. Uh, yeah. I have so many memories of, being so when you have an Iranian citizenship but you live in the United States there's only one place where you can go to reapply for your citizenship and extend your passport and et cetera et cetera um, and that place is what used to be the embassy of Iran um, in Washington DC but instead now it's not technically called an embassy there's lots of you know intricacies to it but essentially it is the same as what an embassy is um, but in under Iranian law and post-revolution, essentially, I am my father's daughter, right? So I cannot do anything without my father being present with me. So, and our passports expired just a few years ago. I want to say like three years ago or so, two or three years ago. And so my dad um, took two days that he had off work and flew with me and my two little sisters to Washington, D.C., 
And we went and we got our new passports and got them all stamped, seals of approval, ready to go. And the moment that you walk inside, because it is essentially the Islamic Republic of Iran in a small little, you know, building in Washington, D.C., I have to wear my hijab just as I would if we were in Iran. And so it's really funny because, you know, we flew there like normal, wearing our out like normal clothes, whatever. And then the day that we went to the embassy, my dad's like, okay, make sure you have your hijab, make sure you got your long shirt, your long pants, we're ready to go, we roll in. My dad is the only one speaking to the clerks at the front because, you know, a woman's place in prehistoric times is sitting in the back and being quiet. Um, And then once it was done, as soon as we stepped back outside, I was like, okay, back to being who I am. Because I also think that the intricacies of being a, a blended child, as you and I both are, are that our identities are so switched. They're so they're so difficult to explain because unless you are the child of an immigrant, I don't think that you will ever be able to step into those shoes and understand that they lived a completely different life, right? And then they moved somewhere, they immigrated somewhere, they started over. Maybe they, you know, it's completely different than what they know. And they are raising you the same way that you, that they were raised. Mm -hmm. And the comparison that my mother would always give me is that when she was growing up, you know, she would go to school and she was the oldest. She had a little brother, make sure that he's okay, bring them back. You know, you had to have hundred percents on everything. Otherwise you were abysmal. And so I was, you know, basically grown to have the expectation of being the absolute best hundred percents. Anything less than that was just unacceptable. And punishments were the same as they were, you know, when she was growing up in Iran and they were a lot harsher and they were a lot less understanding of learning styles and parent-teacher conferences aren't a thing. And there's just a whole lot more that my parents had to deal with. And so when they were raising me and my sisters, they didn't know how else to raise us. They raised us the same way. And so it was difficult because I always felt like I was a different person at school than I was at home. As soon as I entered my house, I, you know, turned on full-fledged, only spoken Farsi. We watched Persian TV shows together. We only ate Persian food. And my mother would cook me traditional Iranian stews for me to take to lunch. And I used to get made fun of for that. And I remember so specifically students being like, like, ew, what's that? Like, my mother would make me something called formasebsi, which is essentially like a spinach stew with kidney beans and meat. And it's delicious. And any time that I would bring it in and heat it up, people would be like sitting there with their peanut butter and jellies, just completely being like, ew, what is that? And now those same people are off posting on their Instagram stories like, oh, look at all this ethnic food that I'm eating. And I'm just, I can't help but sit there and be like, I know that you were children, but the way that you were taught ignorance at such a young age and have to be taught anti-racism and anti-ignorance is so astounding. Mm. I mean, I... Oh, it's so, uh, that, that, that makes me furious and I can't imagine how furious, I mean, it, it must make you as well, uh, the pure ignorance of that and just your parents doing exactly what they thought was best for yeah. you. Yeah. Um, it's just insane. I mean, I've, um, cause I've heard from other friends of mine who grew up in the States, like stories of yeah. them, um, even sitting and eating their lunch in, in, in the toilets and stuff because they yeah. were so afraid of being made fun of. And I think that's just, it's so shocking. It really is. I mean, I mean, I didn't have anything near nearly as like uh, harsh as what you experienced, but I remember when I arrived from international school, uh, from Estonia yeah. to the UK, which was a massive culture shock, more for my yeah. older sister, I think, than, than totally. for me, because I was younger. But um, I used to have, believe it or not, an American accent. And, 
I could not imagine that now. Right? <laughs> so um, I turned up and like, that was made fun of. And I, mm-hmm. I was made to feel, I remember there was one particular word, especially when I said because, because I'd be like, mm. because, or I'm <laughs> saying it terribly now. <laughs> so terribly now. Is that um, how I it? Oh my God. <laughs> no, I'm doing a terrible job, honestly. Um, <laughs> but um, it was like little things like that. And I was like, oh, I don't understand like, why that's different because when you're brought up in like like you had your your like when you went home it was just like your normal way of life right and then like international school it was just everyone was in it together like you had friends from all over the yeah. place so you just sort of yeah. accepted each other um so it's it's so funny yet yeah, because they were clearly i think kids are taught um are taught hatred and taught things like racism because they Absolutely. you know there have been studies in there that show that, that, yeah. that kids don't, they don't give a shit. <laughs> they don't give a shit about yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> no, and, and I think it's also wild because I remember, and it breaks my heart to even say it now, but I remember coming home after days where people would be like, oh, what are you eating? And feeling just so frustrated. You know, I'd go home and be like, mom, why can't you make American food for dinner? Like, why can't we have mac and cheese or hamburgers or, you know, whatever else? And I feel terribly about it now because that, I mean, mac and cheese takes all but 10 minutes to make. And my mother was slaving over making me like gourmet Iranian dishes. And I was so ungrateful. And now every time that I go back home to visit my parents, I beg my mother, I beg my mother to teach me how she makes her food. And of course the woman doesn't use recipes because what respectable foreign woman would ever use a recipe to cook her food. She's like, Oh, just some of this and some of that. And I'm like, what is that? Where do I get that? I'm like, I don't, uh, whole foods doesn't have this spice. I'm like, what other, where am I supposed to find, you know, X, Y, or Z? And she's like, I don't know. I'll figure it out. I'm like, okay, thank thank you. (laughs) Mother, I'm just going to record her. I think next time, like I'm going to bring a camera and I'm just going to set up a tripod and just watch whatever the hell she does. Because every time I'm like, okay, does it, do I add like, I don't know, like a tablespoon of this or a pinch of that. She's like, just until your heart tells you no. (laughs) What is that? I love that. Oh my God. But yeah, definitely bring a camera that I think that's a really good idea. I have to. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Oh my God. I mean, because I wonder what, so when you were were like at home, um, I'm, I mean, I'm I'm sure you didn't have to wear like a hijab and stuff as well. Um, But how do you negotiate? Um, Sorry to backtrack a little bit. No. How do you negotiate your that those two different parts of like um well you, those two different cultures that you've been a part of like from going to be like this like um you know uh, you're just very like outward spoken you're very confident <laughs> and very articulate woman to having to sort of take a step and, back yeah. and 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 you know um, yeah. yet yeah, assume a different role. Well, um, thank you. First of all, it's very sweet of you to say. I am definitely took me a long time to get here. And I think what I can say was truly the reason why I've become the way that I've become and as comfortable as I am. I I guess I wouldn't even say comfortable because I'm not super comfortable in my personhood, but I'm comfortable with my identity and what I identify as. And I do, I identify as being a mix. And I think what helped me get to that point is that I went to public schools my entire life up until college. um, And I didn't even know actually when I started applying and went to DePaul that it was a private institution Um, because I was just so accustomed to my life and how it was and my small town and everybody knowing each other. But I found different ways to express myself, right? So 
I played volleyball when I was younger and I had injured myself. And I remember the doctor telling me, you should swim. You know, it's good for your bones. It's good for your muscles. And I was like seven or eight. And what seven or eight-year-old swims for fun and leisurely activities? I was like, I would like to compete. And so joining the swim team um, was something that my parents were completely fine with, me wearing a swimsuit and competing in that. They were completely comfortable with that because it's for sport. Um, But religion was used a lot of the times to justify policing my body. Um, A lot of the times I was never allowed to wear shorts um, because God wouldn't like that. I wasn't allowed to wear skirts because God wouldn't like that. Wasn't allowed to wear tank tops or bikinis or any of the things um, that according to my parents back then would not be approved of. Um, And I'm very lucky because as I grew older, my parents started realizing that I was my own person. And I think that also has to do with being the oldest child and the first child that they were raising being uncomfortable and not knowing what they were, you know, doing in terms of like one side of my life versus the other. Um, And so as soon as I got a car, I got my father's old car off of him when I turned 16 or 17, um, I had a separate closet in the back of my car. So I would pretend like I was going to school wearing one thing, would either change in the car or in my bathroom if it was like a hot summer day. Um, And then changing back before I got home, I was... I don't even know. I was like sneaking out of the house when I was younger and I had barely ever gotten caught. There was one time, but we don't need to talk about that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I experimented a lot with what I enjoyed. Photography was something in high school that I really loved doing. I'm trying to get back into now. Um, And as I grew, so did my parents. I think my parents got very accustomed to the American lifestyle as well. Um, my dad working at the airport, but also my mom has worked at um, a department store for going on the last 10 to 15 years. Um, And so she had decided to stop wearing hijab. Oh, I can't remember how long ago it was, but I think that I was in maybe fifth grade, fifth or sixth grade before middle school where my mom had decided, you know what, like this, this is her relationship with God. And she decided not to do that anymore. Um, and she stopped using religion as a way to police and justify things, um, which I really appreciated as I got older, because as soon as I moved out, um, it was like the biggest separation that my parents had ever gone through with me. And it was when I started becoming more and more comfortable with telling them a lot more about who I am, because my parents only ever knew me as, you know, good grades, getting to school, doing my thing. They didn't really know who I was as a person, I feel like. Um, And then when I moved out, I was able to actually have more substantial conversations with them about like, hey, I'm an adult now. I'm my own woman. Um, But we might have different levels of appreciation for different things. So now, I mean, obviously they don't police my body now. And I feel a lot more comfortable with being able to tell them, you know, like, oh, I think I'm going to wear like a skirt and a shirt to this summer party or wherever that we were heading at the time. Um, So it's grown together I feel like. No it's wonderful that your relationship with your parents has sort of um, evolved in such a way that you're able to have these conversations um, which um, I'm not sure I mean even it it doesn't even mean like 
oh hang on that's the wrong word but it, like depending on the parents as well like yeah. not not all parents would be so accepting either as well but it's wonderful yeah. that you guys have been able to sort of grow together in that sort of a in that sort of a way and when you were talking about how you had like a different um like a wardrobe in your car yes. like um, <laughs> I, I've, I've had stories of like uh, girls in London like when they go to school yeah. like they'll turn up wearing their hijab and stuff and then they'll go <laughs> oh, like and then after they leave school, sometimes if they're going out or something, they'll leave or they'll, they'll have like a change of clothes and they'll start yeah. leaving in like their mini skirts and things to go out yeah. and meet like all these boys and things and then change. It's like almost like a superhero costume, I oh, was thinking. It was like, I was like three different people when I was <laughs> through 20 years old. I feel like it was a lot of just figuring out what I enjoy, what I valued because so much of it, I'm just, I'm very lucky though that my parents were so understanding of Islam, because growing up, that was something that was very, very, very important to them. Um, and it was basically, it was never an assumption that I would wear hijab. And that is something that I will always appreciate as well. Um, because a lot of the girls that I was going to Persian school with every Saturday had decided all three of the girls that I remember, um, I wanted to be their friend so bad. And it was just never something that clicked or worked out because there was, you know, there's cliques everywhere and they were their own small little group and I wasn't a part of that small little group, but all three of them had ended up deciding to wear hijab and in Islam or rather, I guess my specific um, neighborhood and my culture, when somebody has decided, when a little girl has decided to wear hijab that they memorize and they read through essentially the entire Quran. And once they do that, there's like a party, there's presents, there's celebrations. It's a wonderful thing. Um, and I had went to, I believe, two out of the three of those girls' little parties. And I remember looking at my mom and being like, is it bad that I don't really want to? And she's like, no, that's perfectly okay. You don't, I don't ever want you to feel like you have to do something that you're uncomfortable with or that you don't feel. And that's perfectly fine. Um, and so for that, I'll always be super grateful because they understood a lot, I guess, more of the intricacies of the religion than still a lot of, you know, religious leaders and people would say to believe. Mm. Yeah. And, and would you say that you feel um, like quite at home then, like where your parents are and like where they've, you know, where you've, you guys built your lives? Yeah. I mean, I guess that Chicago will be my home. I don't think I'll ever consider the suburbs and where I grew up home because I never felt comfortable there. I always felt like I wrote a poem about it a few years ago, which is so lame now that I think about it, but it was a lot about feeling like you're stuck in the middle, right? Like I kind of felt like a nomad and that's what the title of one of them was um, because I didn't feel necessarily like I belonged in Iran. I didn't grow up there. Almost all of my immediate family is still over there, but I don't really get a chance to see them as often or talk to them as often as I'd like. Um, and I kind of felt like I found a home in Chicago and I have the people that I value here and love here that are the closest to me here. I have um, a group of, we call ourselves cousins, but none of us are blood related, um, of three other Iranian Americans, just like me. Um, and we've grown up together because we went to the same parties and groups and, you know, we knew the same people. And so we call ourselves cousins and our families are like super close and they are all within an hour's drive away. Um, we all just went out to dinner like about a month ago and went to a Persian restaurant and sat down and it's always fun because I feel like I can be who I really am, which is just a mix of a goofy, strange person who happens to be a part of two very different cultures. And what that creates is 
somebody that very strongly identifies with being Iranian in my roots and also with somebody that very much identifies with being American as much as I wish that I didn't in the year 2020 and 2016 through 2020. Um, <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> oh, well, I should say, actually, congratulations on your new president-elect. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That is honestly, being an international joke has been um, tiresome for the last four years. So I'm glad that we're finally getting over that hump, but still so much work to be done. There's so much. <laughs> I mean, in terms of being an international joke, I feel you. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but what you were saying about like, yeah, um, you know, uh, not feeling quite at home in, yeah. in all these different places, it, 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 uh, I find that societies, no matter where you go, they place so much value on yes. places and there's a lot of pride in, in feeling secure and like tethered totally. to a certain place. And like, I, I feel the same, like I feel slightly, like I, I feel a bit connected to Germany when I go there, but I'm not at yeah. home. Same with yeah. Spain, same with, still same with England. Like I know yeah. I've lived here for the, like the most part of my life now. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it's still like a slight unease. Like you still right. feel slightly displaced. But um, it, it's and it seems like the only way to measure someone's uh, yeah measure uh, someone's identity. But it's so much more than that, isn't it? It right. is that fluidity of you can be all these things and and so much more. Um, right. Which I think is I think is the most valuable. If you ask absolutely. Me. <laughs> I'm totally biased. I mean, just look at this podcast. Oh, we love it. Though. <laughs> we absolutely love it. <laughs> um, and I'd love to read that poem as well at some point. You've yeah, got to send it to me. <laughs> it's not written very well. Um, <laughs> but oh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's written beautifully. I mean, well, what, what's next for you then? So when do you, when do you graduate? So I'm done in June um, of 2021 with my graduate degree. And so then I will officially have my bachelor's degree in political science um, with minors in women's and gender studies and then public relations and advertising. And then my graduate degree in public policy um, with an emphasis in educational um, policy. So afterwards, um, we'll be attempting to find a job in the middle of a global recession, which is, you know, always fun and a global pandemic, which is also always a fun time. You know, we love 2020 and what it's brought for us. Um, but I genuinely don't know. I'm really hoping, um, to either work for a nonprofit within the educational sector, um, or to potentially work for somebody, um, in Congress or on the Hill, um, that does specific work within that committee. Um, but if not, I will just be attempting to do something that brings me joy until I can find that little niche, um, pathway because it's very difficult also, um, for me to try and justify just doing something that makes me happy because I am unfortunately one of the people that has quite a lot of student debt, um, that I need to pay off. So I hope that I can find a job that aligns right well with what I'm looking for and looking and doing. And hopefully with having a new president, I will have more opportunities to work on progressive policies um, and make positive changes. Um, but if not, I do need to find a job that will financially equip me. And unfortunately, being in the United States right now, there's not a lot of middle ground in finding something that makes you happy, but also financially fits what your needs are. Um, so just trying to balance that. I think is the next step to answer your question more directly. 
Yeah, I mean, well, I'm, I'm hoping at some point as well. I mean, the way that you come across, I think one day I expect to see you running for public office at some point. I can see it now. Oh, <laughs> see it now. Oh, I'm mean, the first person I call if that happens. <laughs> honestly, that's when I'm going to try and somehow get my vote to count over there. I'm going to be like, right. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming over. <laughs> well, but I also want to come travel and hopefully if coronavirus is tamed by then and borders are more opened up i can come and visit you again or you can come here again oh my god literally like i i really want to come to chicago and also i don't know if you've ever watched um uh the tv show somebody feed phil it's on netflix you see no that? i haven't but i'll add it to my list of things to watch what is oh it god. so it's basically phil rosenthal who's like the writer and creator of um everybody loves raymond um yes. but he just goes around um like he travels the world finding like places to eat basically and there's a whole episode in chicago and oh my god i was looking oh looking i have at the it, best like, places i am absolutely we, you are coming I've, i'm making a whole trip out of it Honestly, I can't wait. I can't wait. Like, if anything, this pandemic has just re- made me realize how much, like, I need mm-hmm. to go travel. And I've been oh, taking absolutely. it all for granted, so it needs to happen. Very soon. Yes, totally. <laughs> um, well, I'll round off our conversation because I could literally talk to you for hours. Um, what, um, is there anything today that you'd like to plug or promote other than yourself? Or you can continue to do so if you like. Um, absolutely, I guess. If anybody wants to follow me on Instagram, it's at Nahalball, N-A-H-A-L-B-A-L-L. Um, my Twitter has a little bit more complex username. It is my first and last name, and my last name can be confusing, um, but it's just H-A-S-H-E-M-I-A-N. I tweet a lot about politics and being upset at most politics. So if anybody wants a laugh at um, either my jokes or my hysteria, please feel free to follow me. Um, but I will also plug, I have a really good friend named Raina um, that I met in an internship program that I had who does a lot of um, art and she is from Barbados. And so she does a lot of specific art relating to that. And actually I have a little piece of hers right up there. You can see it. Um, and her Instagram is Raina King Art. And so that is something you should also follow as well. She does some great pieces, um, specifically focusing on black culture and the loss of that within the United States as well. Oh, beautiful. Well, you've definitely, you've both got new followers and myself and the Floaters podcast. Remind me never, ever to attempt an American accent ever again. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think, yeah, posh English is, that's my legacy. I'm just going to stick to what I know. Now you can send in your answers to the oh-so-difficult quiz question by commenting on the episode. But if you're like, mm, don't want anyone to copy me, slide into our DMs, why don't you? You have my full permission. And while you're there, why don't you give us a follow? We're at floaters underscore podcast. Please like, rate, review, comment and subscribe to all of the things. We're on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. And... Um, If you do all those things, it will help other people find the podcast. And that means you'll have more people to talk to about the podcast. Win-win. Now we're going to take a little break over the Christmas period. I know, stop, don't cry. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Don't cry, it's okay, it's okay. But we will be back in the new year with more guests, more stories, and of course, more Sophia rambles. This podcast wouldn't be this podcast without them, come on. So... I also wanted to reach out just to see if you or someone you know 
um, has a story to tell and you think they'd be a great guest for this podcast, please get in contact with us via our online platforms. It would be so great to talk with you. And as you've heard, always up for a natter I am. So I'm going to have to leave it there. That's it for today. And for our first 10 episodes, shit me, 10. Who knew a hobby could actually stick this much? Ah, So there's nothing left for me to say other than thank you to Nahal for your time. Thank you to Aral for all your sound help. Please check out his websites and the show notes. Thank you to Adora for your help with graphics. And thank you to you, dear listener. Um, I see you. I see you listening. And I look forward to talking to you soon once again from Studio Wardrobe. Until next time. Bye-bye.